session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Hulaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is The Courage to Be Happy by Ichiro Kishimi and Fumitaki Koga. The Courage to Be Happy. Discover the power of positive psychology and choose happiness every day. Um, I, I at times hesitate when I see positive psychology as a field. I think it's good, but positive thinking at times... Um, I, I could see the good in it, but I also agree with Oliver Berkman's book, The Antidote, where it was about the antidote to positive thinking. But the reason I was drawn to this book is that it's a, a follow-up, or it's written by the same authors, Ichiro Kashimi and Fumitaki Koga, who wrote The Courage to Be Disliked. And um, in this over six years and over 300 books that I've read for the books of the week, I would have to say uh, that is my favorite title of any of the books I read, The Courage to be Disliked, because I think it's so powerful in those few words that it's not that we want to be disliked, but we have to have the courage to be disliked, meaning that we will choose to live authentically, live uh, in a genuine way without the fear of being disliked, that that won't hold us back. So anytime someone asks me about my favorite book, I would always say, that's more difficult for me to say than to say my favorite title of these books that I've covered. So that was The Courage to Be Disliked. This one is The Courage to Be Happy. And it seems like similar to that book, it plays out as a conversation between a, a master and a student. So look forward to reading that and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is How Am I Doing by Dr. Corey Yeager. How am I doing 40 conversations to have with yourself? And so when you hear how am I doing, first you might think it's someone asking you about their performance. You know, how am I doing? And I can ask you listening to me right now, how am I doing? But then when you see that it's 40 conversations with yourself and you read the book, you learn that it's actually about asking yourself, checking in with yourself, how am I doing? And I think that itself uh, drew me to this book because I think that's so important. Learning more about yourself, understanding yourself better, uh, a relationship that we so often ignore or fail to even re recognize as a relationship. We have the sense that, well, I am me. There's no relationship there. It's just me. But that's not the case at all. We actually do have a relationship with ourselves and we also um, can know more or less about ourselves or can continue to learn more about ourselves. But as with anything, it only happens when we put the effort, we put the focus uh, into that and the attention to learn more about ourselves. So I just love that as a, a concept to have a book and just to have that mindset of asking questions of yourself to understand yourself better. Uh, as a psychologist, the work that I do, I often share that Although people, people often will think of therapy as, okay, you go there to fix your problems um, or to, you know, 
um, you know, if you have this disorder, you get rid of that diagnosis. I, and I function much less in that way. Of course, healing will occur uh, in the course of therapy, but more than being a place of fixing problems, I think much more it's about self-awareness, understanding yourself better. And with that awareness, change can come, or really it's the only way change can come. But first, it's that awareness and that itself can be very important in understanding what you're doing in your life, why you're doing it. And then you could try to understand what do I want to change and how can I make that happen? So uh, I really loved this theme and enjoyed the conversations that he brings up throughout the book. And also Dr. Corey Yeager shares a lot about himself. So as you read the book, I enjoy books where you feel like the author is telling you something, but also sharing themselves with you. And you feel that in this book, that as much as he's encouraging you to have a conversation with yourself, you also feel like you're having a conversation with him. And I enjoyed that style of writing and, and the way that that came across. Uh, also, I didn't know when I got the book, but found it quite fascinating that Dr. Corey Yeager is the psychologist for the Detroit Pistons, a basketball team here in the United States. And I'm a huge sports fan, especially basketball fan. I've actually always been a Lakers fan, so the Pistons have been a rival of ours in the, the 80s and then again in the early 2000s. So I have some mixed feelings about that, but I thought that was very cool. I think the field of sports psychology is really fascinating and find it great a great sign that you see many and most professional sports teams embracing having psychologists and um, putting them as part of their staff to help the players uh, you know it totally makes sense that of course their bodies have to be in the best condition but also their minds have to be in the best conditions to bring out the best performance and we're seeing that being embraced more and more also we saw it fictionalized in uh, the series Ted Lasso, where the, the psychologist actually played a significant role there too. So I thought that was very cool to learn that about uh, Dr. Yeager's work. Uh, but let's get into the book. And it starts off with um, the question, who is the most important person in your life? And so each chapter, there's 40 of these chapters, these conversations, starts with a question. And so uh, this one's, I think, an interesting one, because I think most people will think of a loved one possibly if you're married, you'll think of your spouse, or if you have kids, maybe they'll come to mind or a parent. But then he does share that, you know, those people might come to mind, but where do you fall in that list? You know, are you going to be third, fourth, or fifth? Where do you come into play? And it's important to make sure you're first in that. And it doesn't mean you're being selfish if you're the, the most important person in your life. It means you're putting yourself first, yourself first and taking care of yourself. And even if you are a parent or someone who has a role that makes you responsible to others, taking care of yourself and making sure you're keeping yourself important to yourself will allow you to even serve those better as well. Um, as a therapist, if I'm not feeling well, I can't be there for my clients. Or as a friend or loved one, I can't be there for them if I myself am not okay. So I have to make sure I take care of myself first and make sure I'm I'm important to myself. And then the third um conversation also follows on that. It says, who knows you best? And so again, you might think of a good friend or a mentor, even a therapist possibly who might know you very well. But again, it comes back to, well, what about you? We want to make sure we're the person that knows ourself best. And going through a process like this of asking yourself these kinds of questions, going to therapy, that can help in that 
process. Um, but again, we shouldn't just assume because I am me, I know me very well. Often in therapy, I might ask a client, how do you feel about something? It's one of those cliche therapy questions we almost try to avoid because it's so cliche, but it still comes up or even some derivative might of it might come up. And often people might respond, I don't know. And really they have a hard time trying to share or explain what they are feeling in that moment. And often I'll joke, well, then who should we ask? Because it would seem that you're the only person that can know that, but sometimes we even ourselves are unaware of, of what we're feeling. But if we look inward more often, if we slow down, even things like meditation, but introspection, slowly we might get more connected to ourselves, but we shouldn't just assume that because I am me, that I embody me, that I fully know myself, that I fully know this me. Uh, even sometimes I think of ourselves like our houses. And you might live in your house, but it doesn't mean you know everything about your house. You could maybe never go into a certain room or closet or never go to the basement or the attic. Or you don't know much about the plumbing and how things work internally. But you could learn more about those things. It would just take time and effort. But we can't just assume because you live in that house, you know everything about that house. Similarly, even though you are yourself and you reside within you in that way, doesn't mean you necessarily know everything about you or that you can't or that it doesn't take effort to learn more about that you. So I thought that was an interesting way to open up the book with a few of these questions that get into really emphasizing the significance uh, of yourself and understanding yourself. Um, and so uh, chapter 11, I also really liked, do you know how to do battle? And uh, this chapter was all about conflict and and, and how do you deal with conflict or do you, do you deal with conflict? Do you avoid conflict? As the, the title implies, do you know how to do battle? And I think this is a, a really important uh, topic because I've really explored this in myself lately, recognizing uh, avoidance and fears of conflict that I have within myself that I continue to try to work on and how necessary it is to be able to face and embrace conflict in order to have healthy relationships, and even to have a healthy life. Because if you are avoiding conflict even within yourself, that's going to lead to you living a less genuine life or not facing things more head on. So it really is important to think about these things. And most things that we do, um, we do them automatically without thinking about them. So every one of us has a relationship to conflict, whether we recognize it or not. There's a way that you either avoid, face, and also with certain people, or you respond in certain ways, but there's a relationship that you have with conflict. And it can be really important to first try to understand the what, what is my relationship with conflict? And then the why, how did I get there? Okay, maybe there was things that happened in your childhood, or there likely or definitely was things in your childhood that contributed to how you feel about conflict, how comfortable or uncomfortable it is for you, how scary it is or how comfortable it is for you to go into conflict and truly recognizing the benefits of conflict as a way to connect with one another, to be more open with one another could help us see that we do need to accept this as a necessary part of relationships. As we say to couples, it's not uh, if you fight, it's how you fight. You need to have arguments. You need to have disagreements. That's inevitable when any two people are trying to live close to one another. 
You won't always want the same things in the same ways at the same times. There has to be conflict if you're both being genuine. So it's not if you fight, it's how you fight. So I think that's a really important question and something to recognize. Also, in understanding ourselves, yes, we'll look at some things that aren't quite so good, some of our problems, and this comes up in therapy where we often think the only focus is on the negatives, and of course, we usually that's what brings people in, but we also want to emphasize and focus on the positives. What are the good things about you? And this brings up mixed feelings. One is we have a hard time, and many of us will have a hard time, seeing the positive in ourselves or holding on to that, whether it's coming from us or from other people taking a compliment. But also we have these mixed feelings about being humble or showing humility versus being proud or having pride. And there's this sense that pride is always a bad thing uh, when it definitely is not. And so there is a chapter that he has here, number 19, what are you proudest of about yourself? And I thought that was great. And there is a genuine and healthy sense of pride that we can and should have about ourselves. Uh, when we think of the biblical sense of the word pride, it usually is something like uh, an excessive, excessive love of yourself or a higher exalted attitude. So seeing yourself above other people or seeing that you're better than other people or being preoccupied with yourself. That is not healthy. But a genuine pride makes sense. You would hopefully look at some things you have done in your life or how you are in your life and feel good about those things and prefer those things to if you had not done those things or if you were not that way. So when I reflected on this chapter and I tried to do some self-reflection uh, within each chapter about the questions that were being asked, I thought of a few things and one thing that came to mind very fitting for, for what I'm talking about now is reading the books, one book a week for these last six years or so. And that I do feel proud about that. And I can think, yes, I'm happy that I've done that as opposed to if I did not do that. That's something I feel good about. And I can have that genuine pride for myself and feel good about that. And like a lot of these um, topics and like our emotions in general, we can use our feelings to help fuel our future life too. So it's not just... Um, stay pride and, you know, uh, stay prideful or feel this pride. It's that, well, if I see the things that I'm proud of and make me feel good about myself, I can try to encourage myself to continue doing those things or more of those things and, and go in those directions. So by recognizing what I'm proud of, I can get a better sense of my values and I can also get a better sense of what I'd like to continue doing. How can I continue to make use of those things that I've, I've learned from? Um, there's also a regret comes up in the book. And similarly, we would hopefully have that same relationship and experience. I often hear people say, oh, regret is like a wasteful emotion. It's a waste of time. And I don't agree with that at all. I've mentioned Daniel Pink's book on regret that I really enjoyed because it did help me recognize something that I, I feel is very important, that regret is not a bad thing. And really, it's like any of our emotions, if we get stuck in it, that's when it's negative. But regret itself is not a bad thing if we use it to help ourselves understand our past and then make a better future for ourselves. So if I recognize the things that I've done that I regret, not to stay there and just beat myself up and punish myself about why did I do that? What's wrong with me? You know, why am I such a loser or this or that word that I might use to label myself? It said, okay, 
I did this or I didn't do this. We tend to regret more things we didn't do than things that we did. And how can I use that to fuel myself going forward to not make those same mistakes? Often I see people will beat themselves up and not realize that actually saying that regret is part of their comfort zone. It's safer for me to keep beating myself up about what I haven't done than to actually face that that feels bad and now do something differently now. It's very easy to to punish myself for the past rather than avoid use that to avoid doing something now in the present. Or, or the way I jokingly say it is, I know I can't start the work today. I have to beat myself up still for not doing it yesterday. And then the next day, the same thing. No, I have to beat myself up for what I didn't do the day before now and keep going forward. It will never feel that you have the space to take action. But we can actually use our regret as a fuel to recognize I didn't like what I did here. Let me do something differently or let me take action if it's inaction that is making me upset. So after the break, I want to continue a bit more on some of the conversations that came up in this book. Again, the book I'm discussing is How Am I Doing by Dr. Corey Yeager. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book, How Am I Doing? 40 Conversations to Have with Yourself by Dr. Corey Yeager. And it's funny how things work out with timing. During the commercial break, I I checked my phone and I look and I see I have a notification from ESPN and it's about the, the Detroit Pistons, who I was mentioning, Dr. Corey Yeager's psychologist of the coach saying that he was upset saying that they just had the worst call of the season from the, the referees, the officials. I haven't seen it yet, but it was just funny to see that. I don't know if the, the coaching staff also gets to meet with the psychologist, but if they do, maybe. I could see Monty Williams might be a little upset and could benefit some some uh, a session to be able to vent out some of that anger. Um, also today I saw a, a post from Liverpool Football Club, which is a team I support, and that Virgil van Dijk was talking about the psychologist they have there and that he talks to him uh, from time to time and how that's helpful. And uh, I think this is great to see that these messages of uh, athletes who are sometimes given or we have these messages about them that they have to just be always strong and never, uh, you know, thinking that vulnerability would be weak or that if you talk to someone it would be weak. Um, but they are human beings. We're all human beings and we all can benefit from having a place and a space to talk and to, to share how we're feeling and what we're going through. So always get happy to see those kinds of uh, videos and posts to continue to challenge some of the stigmas we have about men and, and mental health, but just mental health in general and the stigmas that we attach to both dealing with anything related to mental health and also seeking out uh, mental health services or talking to, to anyone. And related to that, um, you know, therapy is a very specific type of conversation but it's not the only place where we can have healing conversations. So I sometimes will work with my clients and they'll, they'll t- say how there's some things that they get from therapy that they can't get from talking to their partner or their their loved ones, parent, friend. And I think that's, that's right. And I also try to remind them that there's also things that they can get from those conversations with them that we, we can't do in the, the work of therapy. So I, I do think therapy is wonderful and encourage people to seek out a therapist, at least at some point in their life, because I think, as I mentioned before, it's about understanding yourself and that self-awareness. But I think it's also important to recognize the therapeutic relationships and conversations you can have outside of therapy as well. Coming back to these conversations that we can have with ourselves, that Dr. Yeager um, writes about in the book, 
There's a few more I wanted to touch on. One was, who are the real models in your life? And he makes this distinction between role models and real models. And so role models are people you might admire, but from a distance, whether it's that we don't know them or historically. And, and so he shares, for example, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. being role models of his. But he shares that it's also important to have real models, which are people that we can at some level interact with or be closer up with who can help um, inspire us and help to guide us and maybe even serve as a mentor for us. So I thought that was interesting and important to keep in mind. And, and I think often when we have role models that are figures that we're not close to at all, it could be good. It definitely could be inspirational, but there's generally a tendency to idealize them. That's just how things are with historical figures uh, and people that we are not close with. But I think when you have a real model, someone that you can actually see either in the flesh or connect with in some way, you likely will get a more genuine experience of what it's like to be them. And I don't think it's ever our duty or we should be inspired to become like someone else exactly, but we can be inspired by values or characters that they have that we want to uh, internalize and, and express in ourselves. So I like that, that one, uh, having those real models. Then number 27, do you know what's behind your anger? And I think that's a, a great topic to explore because I think anger is one of these, all the emotions are complex and we have a relationship with all of the emotions that we can experience. But I think our relationships with anger tend to be one of the most complex because I was talking about regret before. And for some people, anger seems like this wasteful or bad emotion and you shouldn't get angry or anger brings out the worst in people. And it's true that when people become angry, bad things can happen. They can become aggressive or violent, but that's just one small part of the spectrum of what anger brings out in us. But like all the other emotions, anger is healthy uh, first as an experience, but then also could be expressed in very healthy ways that are very helpful to ourselves and our relationships. But I do see that people have very complicated and complex relationships with anger that often make it where they think, well, holding in is the right thing. And usually that means they're going to hold in and then explode. Unfortunately, that further reinforces this idea that anger is bad because if you hold it in, by the time you let things out, it's usually not going to come out in a way that you're going to feel very good about. So then it reinforces this cycle. Okay, hold it in, hold it in, explode up, see how bad anger is. And then we, we continue that process. And he also shares how often underneath our anger, as the title says, do you know what's behind your anger? We will see some hurt or pain that is there. And often people would rather feel mad than to feel sad. There can be something that feels empowering about being angry and we'd rather feel angry at someone or angry about a situation. Look, can you believe they did that? How bad was that thing? Rather than focusing on our pain and how we're hurting. Uh, the analogy I use is imagine if someone hurt your child or a small child right next to you. And of course, you would want to get the perpetrator and, and stop them. But if your child was actively bleeding or hurt, we would hope you attend to them and make sure they're okay. Or if we extend this analogy, the person's long gone and their child is still suffering, but you're only focused on finding the person and don't even attend to your child who's hurting and in pain and who could benefit from you and could heal from you turning towards them. Similarly with ourselves, we are, are hurting, we are in pain. When we're angry, there's almost always going to be some pain underneath. And it's something to ask yourself, well, what is it 
that might be hurting within me that this anger is uh, expressing or that I'm turning towards this anger. So I thought that was a really important one because I really think that anger is a a complicated emotion that we often don't recognize um, how we relate to it and how that might impact our relationships with ourselves, but especially our relationships with others as well. A uh, great uh, title here for 34, Do You Love to Win or Hate to Lose? Do You Love to Win or Hate to Lose? And, and I, I love this that title there and just this theme for lots of reasons which I'll get into, but one just more in a, a broader picture is that often we see someone doing something or even we're doing something, but if we don't know the why, the intention could be very different. It could make it mean very different things. So you might see someone studying really hard. So you see someone at the library studying or two people studying. One of them might be studying because they love to learn. And they think it's so incredible to learn and they want to uh, use this knowledge to help other people that they're learning. And someone else might be afraid that if they don't get good grades, their parents are going to punish them. And so they're both sitting there studying so that the outside, it looks the same, but the intention and what's driving it is, is very different. And sometimes with clients, I'll, I'll position it this way. And when I see how they're going about their lives, are you chasing your dream or running away from a nightmare? So chasing your dream means, oh, I want to do something great and I, I think I can do it and it'll feel good to me and it'll help other people and I want to go towards that thing that I, I like. Running away from a nightmare is usually something like, if I don't do it, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, no one will love me. And so you're running towards something, but it's really more you're running away from something than you're running towards something. And again, on the, the surface or to the outside, it might look the same. So here he's looking at, you know, most people want to win and don't want to lose, but some people are fueled more by wanting to win. And some people are fueled more by hating to lose. And as he expresses this theme throughout the book, it's not about let's change something or figure out if the way you are is right or wrong or good or bad, but it's good to understand ourselves. What is it that's fueling you? Do you really love to win or do you really hate to lose? And then going deeper. So again, we have the what, but then we want to go to the why. And we might even notice or recognize certain memories from our past that reinforce this, this either loving of of winning or hating losing that we can then learn from. What is it that we can see makes it so we are so passionate in this way uh, or that one? And so, you know, these are just a few of the ones that, that stood out to me. Uh, every one of them is worth reflecting on. And then he has uh, a way where at the end of each chapter for you to really reflect deeper on yourself and he'll ask you some questions. It's a great book to uh, have a journal with, or you can use like your notes app on your phone or something to reflect on yourself and to share uh, with yourself what is coming up for you as you read these books and and go through these questions. And it could also be something you share with others too. Talk to one another about what comes up for you. For example, things like what makes you deeply happy? And that's a great question to, to reflect on yourself, but it also, of course, the whole point of the book is to get to know yourself better, but also help you get to know someone else better if you ask them um, some of these questions. So I, I really enjoyed that part of the book too, reflecting a bit on myself. And what's incredible about self-awareness is I, I've gone to years of therapy. I consider myself an introspective person who regularly checks in or questions myself about things or tries to think of, well, why did I do that? Or 
notice patterns in my behavior. And so sometimes when you've done that a lot and you have that focus, you get to certain points in your life where you're like, oh, maybe I've kind of figured myself out. Um, and talking about pride, this would be a, a, a unhealthy type of pride. You have this sense of maybe I figured myself out. What else could I learn about myself? Uh, and then you'll have some big realization about yourself. You'll see some big blind spot or recognize a pattern or have some eye-opening realization of why you might be doing something or acting a certain way. And then you realize like, wow, now I realize how little I knew. So I, I see... I don't know how much I don't know, that there's so much more to understand about myself, even if I was static and not changing at all. And the last chapter actually relates to that. But even if I was not moving or changing at all, there would be um, so much to learn. But especially because I'm always going to be moving and growing and changing, uh, that will be the case that I could never fully know myself. And this is another one of those things we mentioned that when you're in a relationship and you think, oh, I fully know my partner, they're boring to me now. There's no way you fully know them because you can't even fully know yourself. So as I read this book, I had a few aha moments and, and breakthroughs and mini breakthroughs of different things. And it was a, a reminder of having that sense of humility that as much as we might think we've done the work, quote unquote, the work never ends. Knowing yourself is an ongoing process. And as the book encourages us to make ourselves the most important person in our life and also to um, to know ourselves best, who knows you best, hopefully that answer is you. If we are motivated by those types of thoughts, those kinds of values, we recognize the importance of continuing to try to know ourselves, understand ourselves, and to, you know, this book is, the subtitle is 40 Conversations to Have with Yourself, but in a way, our life is like one ongoing conversation with ourselves, and one that we hopefully put more and more time and effort and attention on to get to know ourselves better. So really, really enjoyed this book and hope you will check it out. Again, it's How Am I Doing 40 Conversations to Have with Yourself by Dr. Corey Yeager. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the last section of the show, I wanted to talk about a theme related to this book, uh, How Am I Doing by Dr. Corey Yeager that I discussed today about advice, giving advice and um, how that tends to go wrong or the ways we, we go wrong. And I, I know that on this show, oftentimes what I'm doing is sharing some advice and when callers call in, I'm giving them advice. And so I try to be aware of these things of how often giving advice goes wrong or the things that tend to get in the way of it going better. Um, and so I wanted to share some thoughts on that. And first of all, I'll mention one more thing from the book. I think he got this advice from his mother, if I'm not mistaken. And the first time he mentioned it was about choosing a college or which college to go to. He was uh, himself a, a, a football player and was recruited by different colleges. And he was trying to make the right choice. And at one point, um, his mom says to him, uh, it's not about making the right choice. It's about making the choice right. I actually really liked that uh, way of of putting it. I've thought of that principle before, but never so succinctly that this idea that sometimes we think we have to make the, the right choice. And of course, we, we reflect on the options and we do try to make the best choice we can in that that moment when we have to make the choice. But more than that, it's usually about what we do now that we've made that choice. 
I often work with uh, families and they're trying to pick a college, uh, even the way I was about to say it, pick a college for their, their child, but really the child should be the one making the choice which is what I'll be discussing more as, as we continue the segment. Um, but they will say, okay, well, what, what, should they go to Berkeley or UCLA or should they go to this school or that school? And, you know, I want to help them reflect on what are the reasons and things that make them want to go to this school or that school to the end, and then to make their decision. I'll, I won't say this is the better school or this is the better school for you. Um, but what I always try to tell them is, yes, think about this, make the decision. But more than anything, what is going to make your college experience good or bad is what you do when you get there, how you act, behave, how hard you work, how you balance your life, all those things. That's going to be more important than the specific school, especially when we're talking about, let's say, schools that are pretty similar on many qualities. It's not going to be like one is really good and one is going to be really bad. Yes, you might vibe better at one place and feel more at home somewhere or connect to people more easily initially. But at the end of the day, a lot more is, as the advice given by his mother is, uh, it's not about just the right choice, more about making the choice right. And so this bring, brings me back to this theme of giving advice and how uh, we often try to tell people to, what they should do. And that's what we think uh, helping someone is. And even as a therapist, people usually think, okay, I'm going to go see the therapist and they're going to tell me what to do or not to do. Should I break up with my boyfriend? Should I quit my job? Should I do this? Should I do that? They're going to tell me all the right things to do. And they're sometimes sorely disappointed to see that that's not what the therapist is going to do. They're not going to make the decisions for them. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. To begin with, we don't know. Another person, unless it's blatantly obvious, there are some decisions, choices that might be more clear. But in general, someone can't tell you what's going to be definitely good or bad for you because that's not going to be so black or white. But another important reason is that even if someone did know and they made the decision for you, that's going to help you in a small way or in the, the short run, but it won't help you long term because in order to live a good life, you're going to have to continue to make important decisions and choices, and you're going to have to make them coming from within yourself. You're going to have to choose what feels right. And when I say feels, it doesn't mean uh, it's in this quote unquote, just emotional way, but you have to figure out what you want. And the feelings are important. They have to know what f what's the better place for you. Or if you're in a relationship, how you feel in the relationship is very important. It's not about, oh, that's just being emotional, that those emotions are part of what, a big part of what keeps you in any relationship. So we're, we're trying to give someone advice and this comes up often with families that I work with. It's, I think, true of most families, but we see it so often in Iranian families that the parents think one of their their jobs, their duties is to make sure their kids don't make mistakes. If I know something is wrong, I should tell them they shouldn't do it because I have experience and I've lived life. I should tell them what to do to prevent those pains and prevent those mistakes. But unfortunately, when we, we do that, we do several things. One, we don't even know if we're making the right choices, as I was saying before. Um, we can't know that. But very importantly for me, when we make a decision for someone or we tell them this is what you should do, unfortunately, a big message that we're sending them is that you don't know what to do. You don't know how to make the right choice. You're going to get it wrong. And so I have to make the decision for you or someone else has to make the decision for you. And unfortunately, that just internalizes into their head 
that I can't trust myself to make decisions. Someone else tells me what I should do. And even then it becomes into someone else should tell me what I want. And that's where we see this big problem. I can't tell you what you want. So if we're at a restaurant and we're ordering food, now you might tell me if I've been there before and I can say, oh, I've tried this or I've tried that. I can give you recommendations, but I can't tell you what you desired, what you want. Only you can say that. So when we make decisions for someone else, we have to recognize that we might think we're giving them advice and we focus on what we're giving them, but we also should focus on what we're taking away from them. We're taking away their opportunity to make a decision for themselves. We're taking away their agency by making the decision for them. We're taking away their experience of considering options, making a decision, and then dealing with whatever those consequences are of those decisions and trying to make the right choice as much as they can, but also try to make the choice right. We take that all away from them. So as much as we might think, well, if I love someone, I should tell them what's right and wrong. And yes, in some more black and white ways or in some more uh, general ways, that makes sense. But when it comes to making individual decisions, we have to be very careful not to get caught in this sense that, well, I know better. Let me tell you what to do. Don't just focus on what you're giving when you give advice. Also focus on what you're taking away from that person that you are telling. And it also reminds me of generally when we try to tell people what to do, it's kind of like when we are telling someone to be in the moment, we can't be in the moment for them to tell them what they should do in any given situation before it even happens, especially. So uh, using the theme of sports that's come up today, you might coach an athlete on things to do, but you can't say when there's eight seconds left in the game and you're going to be standing here, you have to pass it to person X because we don't know exactly what's going to be going on in that moment. You might share general themes, look for the open man, take the shot if you have it. This person has a mismatch, so look for him. Certain things that might guide them, kind of like values that guide us, but you can't give them that kind of specific direction that when there's eight seconds left, you should do exactly this because you have to let them and trust them to be in that moment and make what they think is the right decision then. We can't tell someone what to do in that position. We can't be in the moment for someone else. They are the one that's there. They're the one that's experiencing it. And what they do has to come from within them, not from the outside, someone telling them what to do. And what we also see happen is that I've worked with many kids that become then, we're looking at them now as teenagers when they're trying to make decisions about life and they're going off to college or they've just finished college and they feel frozen when it comes to making big decisions in their life because everything has been determined for them. Their parents affected so much of what they did as far as even friends they had, activities they did, uh, what classes they take, things they did in school, what high school they went to, what college they went to. And now they're somewhere in their life, whether let's say if they're going to college or they're graduating from college and they're told, okay, well, now pick a career. And they're like, oh, I, I don't know. And they feel totally ill-equipped and unprepared to make this really huge decision and other huge decisions in their life because they don't have the experience of making decisions and figuring out how to make that decision, how to find and listen to that voice within themselves. But they also don't have the experience of then living with those consequences of that decision. 
and they also don't have any confidence in themselves that I can make a good decision, that they can feel good about that. So now I see them completely anxious, feeling overwhelmed and feeling like they have no idea what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to know how to make this big decision when I didn't even have the space to make little decisions in my life? And often these clients are the ones that will be looking to me to make that decision for them. Well, you must know, okay, so what should I study? Or uh, what job should I do? And really for them, it can be tough because when you're in school, you have a very clear path determined for you. Take these classes, go through these grades, even in college. Yes, you might have to pick a major and that can be a very difficult one. Uh, then when they do that though, there might seem to be some general path that they follow that's determined for them. But now when they're told, okay, now what's next step do you want to take? They feel like I have no idea and they'll feel frozen. And so they want you to tell them what to do. And so in general, when someone is feeling bad and they're saying, this is going to help me feel better, we think, well, if I want to help them, let me do that thing that they're telling me will, will make them feel better. But again, recognize that you might take away that anxiety in that moment by giving them a decision, but you're also taking away this opportunity for growth that they can now make that decision and, and go through the process and then deal with the consequences as they come and figure that all out. So this is also a theme related to uh, general parenting knowledge that I, uh, or uh, advice, I say it uh, very strongly this time, um, advice that I give about pain prevention parenting, that sometimes we think our only goal as a parent is to prevent their pain. If I see something that could hurt my child, my job is to take it away, that pain. But similarly there, we see that what we're doing is often we're not just taking away their hurt, we're taking away opportunities for them to grow, to get out of their comfort zone and to strengthen themselves. So be aware of this experience with your children, especially with anyone, that you might see uh, an opportunity or you might think it's an opportunity to give some advice, to tell them what they should do, what's the right thing to do, but recognize how much you're also taking from them at the same time. Show them that you believe in them to make a good decision and to, to make the right choice and to make the choice right. Show them that I have confidence in you. Explore with them. And that's what a therapist generally does. It's not that we just say, I don't care, I don't know, you have to figure it out. We'll explore with you. Okay, well, what, what do you think? What do you like about this choice, that choice? Where are you leaning? What comes up for you? To see and give some guidance to make it more clear and really to clear the blockages to go within themselves to see what they're thinking and feeling about the situation. But at the end, leave it to them and show that we trust that they'll make a good choice and then they'll also make good with that choice and figure out how to get through things. But to tell them what to do might alleviate that anxiety in the moment, but won't help them in the long term. Um, so I appreciate in this book, How Am I Doing by Dr. Corey Yeager, there's definitely advice in the sense of uh, values and, and principles that we can follow. And I think that type of advice is the most valuable advice that we can give is general values, principles, things like that. But it doesn't say do this or do that, or you have to do this or never do that. Or if you're doing this, you're doing it wrong. It is more about guiding us in ways or giving us the values to learn more about ourselves and then make those best decisions for ourselves. Even there's several chapters about dreams and goals and to think about those things and to visualize what it is that you want. But I can't tell you your goal should be X. You have to go within yourself to see what it is 
that you want. And you can also try to understand, why do I want that thing? And then you could try to understand, well, how can I get to that goal? And he talks about that in the book as well. So uh, just some thoughts about giving advice to focus on not just what you're giving when you give advice, but also what you're taking away. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Al-Akwi. Zan Zendegi Azadi.